0: Mm -hmm. So we're going to try to finish um, Midsomer Night's Dream today because we're so fast about doing these things. Uh, So what we were looking at on Tuesday and what we'll kind of assume is um, how the plot trajectory is going to work, although we'll look at it in somewhat more depth if we have time, is the doubling of characters so that the Theseus and Hippolytus' story morphs into the Oberon and Titania story, morphs back into the Theseus and Hippolytus' story, and finally at the very end we get a kind of Oberon and Titania coda, an Oberon and Titania epilogue. Um, And the very idea of epilogues is something that comes up in the Pyramus and Thisbe play when the rude mechanicals offer an epilogue to their own play. So the idea that you have a play with something added on at the end as being part of the whole experience of the play and as either risking that experience or confirming that experience is something that um, comes up in the play itself. But the, the Theseus and Hippolyta question, which is the first question of the play, can we feel happy about the marriage that this comedy will end in, which is, among others, Theseus and Hippolyta's marriage. Can we feel happy about that? Um, That question gets handled partly through the morphing into Oberon and Titania. Some of you um, didn't want to put them on the same level. That is, some of you thought Theseus and Hippolyta are the older and ruling adults, Theseus as Duke of Athens and Hippolyta as Queen of the Amazons, whereas Oberon and Titania, are much freer spirited fairies and it's hard to to imagine them in the same situation. What I was pushing and what I repeat now is the idea that the difference between um, Oberon and Titania and the young couples is that they're married, that they already are a couple. They've already had not only plenty of sex with each other, but after their marriage, they seem to have had plenty of sex with other people. So they're well within the trajectory of marriage. Um, This is something that happens um, well within marriages. Um, But the reason I repeat that now is to say that there's an interesting and really good sleight of plot hand. That is, a way that the plot is advanced if Theseus and Hippolyta are doubled with Oberon and Titania, which is that we skip a tedious moment within the exposition of what it means for people to have experience with each other, which is the moment of Theseus and Hippolyta turning into a married couple who know each other. That is, we get tension. The play starts with tension between Theseus and Hippolyta. And it's not the same kind of tension as that between Hermia and Demetrius names that I've carefully said correctly this time. Um, That is, two people who don't want to be married. Theseus and Hippolyta have, have a history with each other, and that history is one of fighting. Oberon and Titania have a history with each other, and that history is one of fighting. So we start out with Theseus and Hippolyta, but then when we morph into Oberon and Titania, they are married and they're on the outs. So there's a difference there that advances the plot, which is we have a couple that are on the outs with each other, <coughs> or at least one of them is unhappy about what the other one is requiring of her. And then we morph into Oberon and Titania, and we have a couple who are on the outs with each other who have their own followers, and those followers um, come close to coming with b- to blows, fairy skip hence, Um, or you shouldn't come here because the queen is coming tonight. They're on the outs as well, but now they're on the outs as a married couple who are angry at each other, not as a couple that's not yet married and where the, the the, the tension that's between them is whether they want to marry each other or not, but now a married couple who are angry at each other within a marriage, So while we're watching one thing, one aspect, which is the older couple angry at each other, what Shakespeare does is he puts us in a part that we're not watching into a different frame of mind, which is we're now looking at tension between people who are married and not tension between people who are not married. Um, There's a YouTube demonstration of um, some psychological experiment about what you notice and what you don't. I'm sure some of you have seen it, where you're asked to watch a card trick. And you're watching the card trick, and what you don't notice – do people know about this? What you don't notice as you're watching the card trick, so one person does it at any rate, is that the tablecloth on which the card trick is being shown changes from a checked cloth to a solid cloth, and the background behind the magician who's doing the card trick changes from, um, I don't know, a flag to a solid pattern – Um, and the back of the cards that are being used changed from red to blue or something. There are like three major background things you don't notice because you're concentrating on trying to see how the card trick is done. And then at the end, they go through it again now with the camera pulled back so you can see all the things that they've changed um, while you were concentrating on something else, which is how tricks work. You concentrate on the wrong thing. It's how plot tricks work also. You concentrate on one thing, And then another thing happens in the plot that you haven't been concentrating on. So we are made psychologically to feel that the tension that the play opens with, which is a forced marriage, turns into a tension that looks just the same, a tension between um, a middle-aged male and a middle-aged female, both of whom have very great self-confidence and very great authority with their followers and um, with themselves. The tension is the same, but now the situation is different, not only, and we know it's different, it's humans versus fairies, but the difference we're not noticing, but psychologically and subliminally really matters, is it's a difference between people who are not married and tension between people who could easily go their separate ways now to a difference between people who are married. Yeah Is it ever hinted at how old Theseus is, um, is, is supposed to be no, but it's um, We know there's history um, We know there's history because Oberon and Titania have been their patrons and they complain to each other about that very history, that you made him with fair ber- um, um break his faith and with Ariadne and Antiopa. Um, so he's got a lot of erotic history, whereas the only erotic history that the young couples have is a little bit um, between Demetrius, uh, who used to love Helena and made love um, to her, but now look what he's doing. So you have naive couples, and um, the way you establish the age of the other couples is they're not sexually naive, and that's really the only difference that you need to know. But if you're, if you're casting them, you certainly want older actors, or you want people who can play older actors playing Theseus and Hippolyta, and playing Oberon and Titania, and if you're doubling them, that happens as a matter of course. Um, you know that Titania is at least old enough that the um, changeling boy is now a teenager or an adolescent, um, whereas she was there when he was born because she was a friend of the boy's mother. So again, that gives you some sense of the older... Shakespeare is interested in the erotic lives of older couples. Um, The older he gets, the more interested he gets in it. Um, but he's interested in it from the start. And one of the things, I guess I'll make a general comment about Shakespearean comedy, is that almost always there's a couple gets together at the end of a Shakespearean comedy that we weren't thinking about as getting together, that we hadn't anticipated. Um, And often the way he'll do this, especially early if you know the comedy of errors, um, the way he'll do this is, It's obvious who's going to get together at the end of the comedy of errors, but it turns out that someone that we didn't imagine could possibly be part of this general coupledom at the end of the comedy of errors. I don't want to spoil it. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. But someone that we didn't imagine could be part of this is part of it. And it's as though what Shakespeare is saying is, you know it's a comedy. You know there's going to be marriage at the end. But what you don't know is that I have another couple in reserve that you never dreamt could be part of this general good feeling. Um, There's yet one more couple at the end. Usually or often that surprise couple, part of what's gonna make it possible to make it a surprise couple for Shakespeare is that it'll be older people. That is, that suddenly two people will be handled as having erotic lives that in a comedy we weren't thinking of as part of the erotic story that's being told. We think the erotic story is about these young people who've never had sex, and then suddenly older people who've had plenty of sex and who no longer seem interested in it, suddenly they get a happy sexual or erotic ending as well. So that's a device in early Shakespeare, is getting an older couple together as... as, um, um, as, as the, the um, I don't know, cream on top or cherry on top. I was trying to avoid those double entendres. But it's a surprise in the dessert. You get dessert, but the dessert is better than you thought it was going to be. Um, and um, later in Shakespeare, especially as he gets older, he gets more interested in the older couple's because he's interested in older couples and interested in that experience. Again, Hamlet, in a way, is going to be the transition there because Hamlet says very ungallantly to his mother, you're too old to want to have sex. Why are you married to that guy? Um, And he's wrong. It's one of the things that Hamlet gets wrong. Um, At your age, he says, you should be playing Mad John. Um, And no, not. Um, And Shakespeare thinks and wants us to see that that's wrong. The last play we'll do in this class, The Winter's Tale, is about a similar kind of surprise ending, but in a context where everyone is older, um, where time has passed for everyone. But Antony and Cleopatra is also very much about an older couple, where Cleopatra um, is explicitly asked to compare Her relationship with Antony now that she is as she puts it um, with Phoebus's that is the sons amorous pinches black and wrinkled deep in time that is she's very much weather-beaten and wind-beaten and she says think on me that am with Phoebus's amorous pinches black and wrinkled deep in time yeah I'm older Um, But think of that as beautiful, not the opposite of erotically appealing, but the confirmation and the deepening of erotic appeal. And and one of her maids says to her, um, or she says to one of her maids, did I ever love Caesar the way I love Antony? And her maids start, start making fun of her, and they say, oh, the gallant Caesar, the beautiful Caesar. And Cleopatra says, why are you saying that? Say the gallant Antony. And her maid says, pardon me, madam, I sing but after you. That is, she had said all those, all those things about Caesar, and now she's, um, she's being parodied for saying the same things about Antony. And then she replies, it's true I did, she said, during my salad days when I was green in judgment, cold in blood to say as I said then. That is, she's saying, yeah, it's true I said that about Caesar, but I didn't know what love was when I was a youth in my salad days. I was cold in blood to have that crush on Caesar. So the older couple and the erotic life of older couples is something that Shakespeare is interested in from the start, first as a device when he's young, but more and more as a deepening insight that he'd had practice with because he started it as a device. So Oberon and Titania, Theseus and Hippolyta fit in that category, the older couples category. Um, let's what we looked at last time was the way Act One, Scene One um, sets the stage for um, Theseus doing something that we don't approve of, and um, Hippolyta cues us to that disapproval. Um, as we know from that line, what cheer my love, which means she's unhappy about everything she's seeing, to the beginning of Theseus's rescue by the play, which we've seen already subtly in the way he seems to be agreeing with Aegeus in Aegeus's view that he can marry Hermia where he wishes or have her executed. And he says, yes, he's right. He can have you marry where he wishes or have you executed or you'll have to go live a barren sister all your life chanting faint hymns to the called fruitless moon. So it looks like he's agreeing with Aegeus, but he's come up with a third way out. It's not nearly enough of a third way out, but it starts telling us something about his character, which is that he might be deeper than he seems to. At first and I just wanted to draw your attention to that Um, let us look at um, act 1 excuse me act 2 scene 1 and this is the scene where we are introduced to the third um, group in the play so the first group we could say are the group of Athenians Um, then we get the group of the young couples who are left on stage, or at least three of them, there's one who's in the Richard II position, kind of identified in a priggish and huffy way with the older ones, but three of the four young people are left on stage, so that's group number two. Group number one are the Athenian authorities, group number two are the young people whom they have authority over, and then group number three are the fairies, and they also split into Oberon's fairies and Titania's fairies, and that split is indicated from the start. Enter a fairy at one door, and Robin Goodfellow, that is Puck, at another, and um, they're saying there's going to be a clash if both the king of fairies and the queen of fairies come in with their train into the same place. We get some wonderful description of who they are. Puck says, I am that merry wanderer of the night. I jest to Oberon and make him smile. Um, so Puck's is to Oberon what Philostrate is to um, Theseus, that is, the master of the revels. And then at around line 58, enter king of fairies, that is, Oberon at one door with his train, and queen at another with hers. And um, Puck says, but make room, fairy, here comes Oberon. And the fairy says, and here my mistress would that he were gone. And now we get the meeting of them, Oberon, ill-met by moonlight, proud Titania. Uh, we find out later that they meet by moonlight because um, they always follow darkness like a dream. These are nighttime fairies, not daytime fairies. They're dream world fairies, not daylight fairies. Um, Puck will say, some of you um, will, of course, recall, when he's sent to get the love juice, um, He says to Oberon, I'm going to go really fast. What he actually says is, I'll put a girdle round about the Earth, do you remember? In how long? In 40 minutes. Um, So here's an interesting fact. Shakespeare knew, or thought he knew, that orbital velocity around the Earth would be 80 minutes. Um, In fact, it's 90 minutes, but they had um, miscalculated the diameter of the Earth at the time. Um, And at the time, what they believed was orbital velocity around the Earth was 80 minutes. So Shakespeare is actually, that's a little tip of the Shakespearean hat to um, the friend of his who'd figured this out, Um, that the fastest you could fly around the Earth without hitting escape velocity was 40 minutes to the Antipodes. Um, If you went faster, uh, you'd just go out of orbit. and what, th- what they do is they follow darkness, um, not at 80 minute um, rotations, but at 24 hour um, rotations around the earth, always following darkness like a dream. It's very poetic, isn't it? Um, so here they meet by moonlight, and Oberon and Titania have a history. Ill met by moonlight, proud Titania. What? Jealous Oberon. Fairies, she says to her followers, skip hands, I have forsworn his bed and company, so they have quite a history. Um, Oberon plays the Theseus card, tarry rash wanton, am not I thy lord? And Theseus replies, I mean, (laughs) Titania, God, help me. Then Titania replies, then I must be thy lady. Um, Notice how good that reply is. What he means by am not I thy lord is, don't I get to boss you around as a lord does a vassal? But she takes the word lord and takes it as equivalent in rank um, as the male version of lady. So Oberon is thinking lord and dependent, lord and vassal, and Titania immediately twists that to lord and lady. That is two equals. I must be thy lady if you're my lord. I'm your lady. But I know, and she just wonderfully quickly gets to accuse him. But I know when thou hast stolen away from fairyland and in the shape of Karin, some shepherd sat all day playing on pipes of corn and versing love to amorous Philida. In fact, what are you doing here? She says, Why art thou here? Come from the farthest steppe of India, but that forsooth, the bouncing Amazon your buskined mistress, and your warrior love. To Theseus must be wedded, and you come to give their bed joy and prosperity. So you claim to be my lord and my faithful husband, but I know what you spend all your time doing, which is chasing um, skirts, or chasing togas, or whatever you would chase at the time. Um, In fact, what are you doing here, except that that bouncing Amazon is here to marry Theseus? And Oberon turns the accusation Right back at her. How canst thou thus for shame Titania glance at my credit with Hippolyta? Yeah, Hippolyta likes me, but how can this just happens to be the case? We're good friends. Um, How can you glance at my credit with Hippolyta knowing I know thy love to Theseus? Didst not thou lead him through the glimmering night from Periguna whom he ravished and make him with fair achilles break his faith with Ariadne and Antiope? So look at Everything you've done because you've got the Hots for Theseus and you're talking about my nice little friendship with that woman, Hippolyta. Um, And um, she then responds, these are the forgeries of jealousy. Um, It's not true. You're simply jealous. There's something I want to point out here, though, that's really interesting, I think, or two things that I want to point out here that are both really interesting. One is if they're doubled, then notice what you're getting here is something like um, you know that's talking about pina coladas um, personal ads um, where it turns out that the two people who are who are putting in personal ads um, because they're tired of their marriage are meet each other um, or there's the wonderful movie um, the lady eve which works the same way that is um, the very end of that movie it's not a terrible spoiler to give it to you um, the very end of that movie is um, Henry Fonda believes that he's um, married someone else. Barbara Stanwyck gets really, really angry at him, um, and Henry Fonda, um, and she comes back in disguise, and Henry Fonda marries the disguised Barbara Stanwyck, and then he meets the original um, Barbara Stanwyck back in her original character after he and the disguised Barbara Stanwyck have um, Um, split but they're still married and she brings him into her stateroom and he says I can't go in he says I'm married and she looks at him and says so am I dear so am I and brings him in and then you realize yeah they are married Um, they're married to each other only he doesn't know that he thinks he's married to someone else Um, same thing is going on here if you think of Theseus and Hippolyta being doubled by Oberon and Titania that is what Titania says to Oberon is you're here for Hippolyta but if she is Hippolyta that's in a way okay suddenly that complicated um, situation resolves into a simple one it's not four people it's two and if he's Theseus then her love for Theseus also turns out to be a love for him Um, what looks like a complicated crisscross of partner swapping and anger and jealousy about that partner swapping, turns out, no, but it's not four people. It looked like four, but it's really two. So the happy ending and the jealousy, the jealousy is just a complicated version of its own solution. The jealousy is a complicated version of a happy ending. Um, The other thing, though, to notice if you take the jealousy seriously here is the strangeness of the accusation, which is that what Titania says is, I know why you're here. You're here because your girlfriend, um, Hippolyta, is here, and you're here to arrange her happy marriage to Theseus. That is, you're here not out of jealousy that Theseus is taking your place in her life and in her bed. You're here to arrange a happy sexual and erotic outcome with Theseus. You're on her side, but being on her side doesn't mean that you're jealous of her relation to another man. It means you are the patron of her relation to another man. The way you show her love is to arrange her wedding to another man, and he turns that accusation back on her. No, I know you're here for Theseus. How do I know that? Because the way you show your love for Theseus is by arranging sexual relationships for him with other women. Um, It's not what you would expect you're here to have sex with with Hippolyta. Ha! How dare you say that when I know you're here to have sex with Theseus. No, it's you're here to watch Hippolyta marry Theseus happily. You're here to watch Theseus marry Hippolyta happily. That's what you do. That puts them in the same relationship to the couples that they have come to less, which is what they do at the very end, as we are to characters on stage. Yeah? What does that say about Aegeus and Hermia? A lot. Um, Which is that there's something really incestuously creepy. What it says about Aegeus and Hermia is there's something incestuously creepy, which Lysander picks up on when he says, you have her father's love, Demetrius. Do you marry him? Um, So, wanting to decide who is going to marry whom is Creepy because it's incestuous. It's like getting into bed with them. There is a character um, in Troilus and Cressida um, named Pandarus, whence our name Pander, um, who precisely works on that sort of thing. Wanting to force someone to marry against their will because you will get your jollies um, if they marry the person that you like, that becomes incestuous and creepy. Wanting to see someone marry the person they want to marry and taking a kind of erotic pleasure out of that, that's theater. That's what we do when we go to movies or plays. When we want to see a couple happily married, it's usually that we really like one of them, depending, to some extent, probably, as Shakespeare is at least suggesting here, on our own sexual orientation, and our own gender, we really like one of them, but the way we like that one is not to think, oh my God, I don't want Ingrid Bergman going off with Cary Grant, I want her for myself. Um, That's the really creepy, a way of looking at a movie. (laughs) Um, The standard and wonderful and generous way that we have of looking at movies is to say, Cary Grant, he's so wonderful. Why should Ingrid Bergman say no to him? I really hope she'll change her mind because Cary Grant, God, I love him. So there's a kind of non-jealous relationship that we have to the erotic lives of characters we care about, which is wonderful, which makes theater possible, at least it makes comedy possible, Um, and which Shakespeare is fascinated by in play after play after play. He's fascinated by this fact, Um, and which contrasts precisely with the Aegeus view that it's not about making the person happy with her choice. It's about making the person marry the person you want her to marry, which is the creepy father view in Shakespeare which you get in Aegeus. In Othello, you get in Brabantio, Desdemona's father. Um, In Hamlet, you get it in, sort of get it in Polonius. Um, And you get it in plenty of other plays in Shakespeare as well. So the creepy father, and it's always fathers who do this. um, Romeo and Juliet is another um, um, obvious example, and one very close to a Midsummer Night's Dream. That is, um, Capulet in Romeo and Juliet is Aegeus, Um, It's the same story, kind of. Pyramus and Thisbe's parents or um, Thisbe's parents are in that situation also. Forcing a marriage against inclination is letting your own erotic desires trump the more generous way that we root for people to marry the people they fall in love with when we go to movies or to plays. But Shakespeare makes that clear here through the strange... Fairyland reversal, um, where even rooting for someone can seem like the wrong thing, and people have—I think everyone has had this experience in movies, also, which is if you go on a date out on a date with someone um, when you're very young, you may feel embarrassed about a moment when you like the character in the movie better than the character you're on the date with, um, <laughs> or you may worry that that person will think that you like the character in the movie better than them, and so you have to kind of pretend that you're not really liking that character that much. You know, it's kind of nice, and yeah, this all, this all um, um, blends in with a certain kind of politeness that you'll also have on a date, which is you start talking about how much you like the character that you imagine the person you're with would have really liked in the movie, rather than how desperately in love you are with Cary Grant. You say, well, Ingrid Bergman, she was really good in this, wasn't she? Um, So that kind of post-movie conversation that you might have when you're nervous is another way of confirming um, the thing that Shakespeare is interested in at this very moment, which is the actual anxiety comes out completely here, which is you're here because you like Hippolyta and you want to see her having good sex with Theseus. How can you say that to me? You're here because you like Theseus and you want to see him having good sex with Hippolyta. Um, Shakespeare pushes that as far as it goes, but he's pushing a very normal situation that he's very interested in. Um, Let's go a little further in this scene when Oberon says, why should, this is at line 119, why should Titania cross her Oberon? I do but beg a little changeling boy to be my henchman. I'm not asking for much. And Titania has her great response: "Set your heart at rest." Um, I think for me this is the most beautiful um, moment in the whole play. "Set your heart at rest." The fairy land buys not the child of me. Um, you could give me the entirety of your kingdom, I would not give up this child. The fairy land buys not this child. Of me, buys not the child of me. His mother was a votress of my order. Now, we know that his father was a friend of Oberon, so again, the couples are dividing up. Um, as Theseus and, and um, Oberon and Titania and um, Hippolyta divide up into couples, now the, fairy, the changeling boys, mother and father, also divide up um, with Oberon and Titania. His, his mother was a votress of my order, and in the spiced Indian air by night full often hath she gossiped by my side and sat with me on Neptune's yellow sands marking the embarked traders on the flood when we have laughed to see the sails conceive and grow big bellied with a wanton wind. So notice what the, the metaphor here is that they watch the boats, they watch the ships on, um, in the bay on the water, and they watch how the sails billow out like pregnant bellies when the wind blows into them. So the wanton wind impregnates the sails, and the sails um, become big-bellied, which she, with pretty and with swimming gait, following, Her womb, then rich with my young squire, would imitate and sail upon the land to fetch me trifles and return again as from a voyage rich with merchandise. So we get a beautiful reversal here where they watch metaphorically pregnant sails which she who is really pregnant imitates. So she, a pregnant woman, um, moves on the sand like a pregnant ship and imitates the ships that look like pregnant women so the pregnant woman imitates the ships that look like pregnant women and she she runs errands and fetches trifles for titania and then this sudden engulfing but but she being mortal of that boy did die so it's almost as though it was inevitable she being mortal of that boy did die. She died in childbirth. She, being mortal of that boy, did die. And for her sake, do I rear up her boy. Not the boy, but her boy. It's still her boy. She's dead. But for her sake, do I rear up her boy. And for her sake, I will not part with him. Um, That's beautiful. And that's one of the intrusions into this play of Reality, we got an earlier intrusion of of mortal reality Um, in her last long speech or in the speech before (coughs) where she describes everything that's wrong with the climate and with the harvest and everything else and she says it's all our fault Um, but there it's as though what's wrong with reality was the fault of the fight between the fairies here she's saying there's nothing we can do about mortality Um, She was a votress of my order, but being mortal, she died in childbirth. And all I can do is rear up her boy out of faithfulness to her. I couldn't save her, but I can rear up her boy. And for her sake, I will not part with him. Now, we're not really going to get another intrusion of reality into this play until the end um, when Puck declares why they're coming in to bless the house, and his speech begins, Now the hungry lion roars, and the wolf behowls the moon, while the sleeping plowman snores, all with wearied work foredone. Now the screech owl, screeching loud, puts the wretch that lies in woe in remembrance of a shroud. So he's saying, now it's the time of night when these things are really happening, including the fact that someone is dying, the wretch that lies in woe, and he hears the screech owl, and he's reminded by that bird of ill omen of the shroud that he will soon be wrapped in. Now, that hungry lion, that moon is real as compared to the doubly fictional lion and moon in the play of Pyramus and Thisbe. In Pyramus and Thisbe, we have a lion and we have a moon too, and they're as far from reality as you can get. And it's as though there are three levels of reality now, although it might be a little bit hard to order them, but there are three levels of reality. There's Pyramus and Thisbe. There are the Athenians um, and the fairies and then there's the actual reality of death and suffering that the fairies and no more than the Athenians can do anything about. That actual reality enters into this play from time to time um, as actual reality in a sense ought to because it's like in the most wonderful of plays, in the most unreal and happiest of plays, you need some reminder of that happiness it's like sticking your toe out into the cold air from under the warm blanket it's a pleasure to do the cold is there but it's only your toe and that makes you feel the warmth of everything else there's a kind of pleasure in comedy which also comes from sticking your toe out into reality Um, and the reality there is Look what the real world is like. Just remember it for a moment and then go sinking back into this wonderful dream. Um, Sink back into this wonderful comedy. Um, It's not real, but that's okay. You don't have to deal with reality during this play. Just enough to, as um, those of you who know The Tempest will know, just enough, as Caliban says, to cry to sleep again. That is, you may wake up for a moment, and what does reality tell you? How wonderful it would be to sleep again. And it shows you how wonderful sleep is. Reality is a device to show you that sleep and dreams are great. Um, At least in Shakespearean comedy, reality is a device to show you how wonderful fiction is. Um, And so those intrusions of the real into this play are intrusions which just heighten the sense of pleasure and of escape and of alternative that the fiction gives you. Um, And this intrusion of the real, however, is the most melancholy. She being mortal, just those two words, but she being mortal of that boy did die. This is the comedy version of Richards saying, I live with bread like you, feel want, taste grief, need friends. Um, The truth behind the fiction, which is that a king is immortal, or that fairy land really exists, and that if you consort with fairies, you no longer need to fear reality. Um, One other place where reality almost comes in is if you go now to Act 2, Scene 2, um, go to Hermia's um, Dream, which is, um, it's 865 of the Norton, um, it's Act 2, Scene 2, line 150 or so. The context of this is they've, they've gotten lost in the woods, um, and they're going to have to spend the night there because they don't know where they are, um and so they um revert to a kind of gender stereotype um or at least lysander does which is he says you know we're going to be married tomorrow so i'll just lie down here right next to you um and keep you warm um we'll share a blanket that's all soon we'll be married and um hermia says not so fast buddy uh, once we're married, fine, but not so fast. And Lysander says, no, 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 you misunderstood me, which is probably unlikely. Um, <laughs> but he had plausible deniability, but he's a good guy. Um, he thinks there would be nothing wrong since they are practically married already. She does think there'd be something wrong. It's her choice. That's what makes him a good guy, is that it's her choice. Um, so he sleeps farther off. Puck makes the makes the mistake. Um, He sees the youth with Athenian garments, and so he imagines that this is Demetrius, um, whom he's been instructed to put the love juice on. You you know all this because you all passed the quiz, right? Um, And then Lysander abandons her. Now, that's interesting because um, it raises a question that in a way has to be a question later in the play, which is, Does the love juice bring out your real character or not? That is, Lysander abandons her. You can imagine another thing happening, which is he might turn into a kind of tragic figure. That is, he might think, oh, my God, I'm in love with Hermia. I mean, with Helena now. But I have plighted my troth to Hermia, and although I no longer love her, I will never say so. I will marry her anyhow because she's relying on me. Um, That would require a certain depth that he doesn't have. Um, Now, the mortal women (coughs) don't get love juice put on their eyes. You could imagine a farcical version of this play where everyone falls in love with the wrong person if they somehow got the love juice put on their eyes as well. But it's a general fact in Shakespeare, at least in the comedies, Um, where female characters have equal billing, it's a general fact that the women are always a cut deeper than the men. Um, The males are never as deep in comedies as the women are. There isn't a single comedy, including Taming of the Shrew, in which this isn't so. Um, Shakespeare's women, when they have equal billing because of the kind of story it is, Um, including in in Cleopatra and Romeo and Juliet, it's not only the comedies, it's the tragedies that are about women too. When they have equal roles in the story are always deeper than the men. Um, Always, without exception. And one way you can see that in A Midsummer Night's Dream is already in what um, Titania says to Oberon about the changeling boy. I really want the boy because he could be my henchman and I want the boy because I'm rearing him, rearing him up for the sake of his mother who died being mortal. Well, whose side can you possibly be on? Um, oh, well, I guess we split the boy, um, as Solomon might. Um, that's the Solomonic um, answer. Um, so, no, Shakespeare is not going to have the mortal women make, fo- make fools of themselves. Yeah, he does kind of... Have Titania make a fool of herself, except she doesn't. Except even when she's in love with Bottom, one of the great things about the play is the dignity that she has, even in that utterly absurd situation of being in love with Bottom. Um, she says, look, I love him. It's, it's strange. Um, and then she says, tie up my love's tongue, bring him silently. That is, she knows. She doesn't think, oh, everyone is going to be in love with Bottom, too. He's so amazing. What she thinks is, you know, it's bizarre. I love him. But what do you expect from a male? This is about the best you can get. <laughs> um, and I do love him. Um, and that's, that's how to play her. That's, that's her attitude towards him. So even So she resists the humiliation that the young lovers can't resist by having love juice put on their eyes. Because she resists it, because the young lovers can't resist it, Shakespeare just doesn't have love juice put on their eyes at all. Um, But instead, you have Hermia now waking up from her dream, or her dream within the dream. And she wakes up, help me, Lysander, help me. Do thy best to pluck this crawling serpent from my breast. And then she shakes herself awake a bit. I, me, for pity, what a dream was here. Lysander, look how do I do quake with fear. Methought a serpent ate my heart away and you sat smiling at his cruel prey. Now that's an interesting dream that she has. And um, to cut to the chase, what it is is it's an anxiety dream, but the anxiety is about sex. That is, um, he's wanted to sleep with her. He says, literally, sleep with her. When I say I want to sleep with you, I really mean sleep. Um, (laughs) And um, what she is dreaming is of a phallic serpent who is after her. And not only that, but Lysander loves watching this phallic serpent go after her. Um, And you don't have to be a Freudian to see what her anxiety is about. That is, that his love for her is hormonal. It's sexual desire. And for women, that's a real issue, because what men risk having sex is the pox, um, but not if they're having sex with virgins, presumably. At least that's what they believe. What women risk having sex is dying, because you have sex, and you get pregnant. And if you get pregnant on your first pregnancy, there is something like they, this is actually a downward revised estimate. The estimate used to be higher, and Shakespeare probably thought it was um, had a higher number in mind. But the downward revised estimate for um, um, uh, death in childbirth or right after childbirth in um, what's it called purple um, fever is, was 20%. Um, so any woman who is pregnant with her first child Um, Was facing a one-in-five chance and kind of more or less knew that a um, one-in-five One-in-five chance that she would die within the next Let's say eight months at most seven months because that's when you would know you were pregnant Um, the Indian votress um, Who is imitating the pregnant sales? um, She's showing and she's showing substantially so that scene that um, Titania is remembering when she would um, imitate the embarked traders on the flood, that's a scene where she's six months pregnant anyhow. um, That means that that scene that she remembers with such joy is three months before her death, her womb then rich with my young squire. Um, She's within three months of her death. Um, That's another intrusion of reality. And here, that sexual intrusion of reality comes up in Hermia's anxiety dream. And you sat smiling at his cruel prey. And then what happens? Well, Lysander has betrayed her, not the way she thought, but it's still an erotic betrayal, a hormonal betrayal. The love juice acts like a kind of hormone. He sees Helena, and off he goes, abandoning her possibly to her death. Well, what she then does is she responds, and thank goodness she doesn't respond as Thisbe will by saying, he's gone, some lion must have gotten him, I'm all alone, I will kill myself. Um, What she does instead is to show spunk and to um, look for him. Um, Okay, we don't have that much time, and I'm determined to get to Merchant of Venice um, which we only have one day on on Tuesday. So um, let's go forward to um, the end of the play. Um, the play is all delightful, but let me just uh, say a little bit about um, the return of Theseus and Hippolyta at the beginning of Act five. Yeah. Well, no, he's, yeah, he, it's not a mask he's wearing. What happens is he goes off stage, or there's some trickery and he puts on uh, uh, the mask of an ass. Um, And um, then everyone says, bless me, Bottom, thou art translated. Um, Then then he takes it off and he thinks it's been a dream. Um, Bottom's dream, because it has no bottom. But no one is actually, what happens the next day is there's a kind of general um, um, amnesia about quite what happened. And one of the things that Shakespeare is thinking of and interested in is how, how we have very vivid dreams that we then don't remember. Um, and he's saying, well, what if I put that in a play? Um, that is made it possible. It's, you know This is where men in black comes from. Um, make it possible for people to have these very, very vivid experiences and then wipe their memories as dreams do. Um, so Hermia wakes up from a dream. Um, Bottom wakes up from his dream. And he says, oh, I had this dream. Me thought I was. Me thought, uh, I can't even say. Um, What it was Um, I defy anyone to understand my dream Um, Then the lovers are all confused When they wake up Um, And so was this really A dream that we were watching Well you know it's possible um, That you can interpret it that way It's certainly possible to put it on that way One thing that makes it possible To interpret it that way Are the induction scenes that I mentioned um, Before um, In um, The Taming of the Shrew um, the it looks like it's been written so that Sly, who's the person who sees the play performed, who's made to think he's a rich man, um, is then allowed to think that he's dreamt that all this has happened. Um, you don't get the frame at the end of Taming of the Shrew, so it's not clear. But if you have the Norton, um, there's some, they give you some evidence for what might have happened at the end of Taming of the Shrew. There's another play earlier than Shakespeare called *Gammer Gurton's Needle, where, um, which starts with an induction where um, some people are talking. And, uh, and um, they're waiting for the play to begin. And one of them says, look, why don't I tell you a story? Um, they're just never going to start with this play. And she starts telling a story. And then as she's telling the story, the story starts being acted out on stage. And that's a place where someone is actually, an audience member seems to be narrating a story to another audience member, but the play then becomes the um, almost cinema-like flashback, voiceover performance of the narrated story. So sure, you could have a dream that we see in Shakespeare, too. Why not? Um, So that, it could just be a dream that they're waking up from. But it doesn't have to be. Um, if it is a dream, it doesn't matter. Because as Puck is going to say at the end, it can be your dream. Think that you have slumbered here um, and um, um, while these visions did appear. And this weak and idle theme, no more yielding but a dream. So if you didn't like it, if, if we shadows have offended, sure, treat it as a dream. Forget about it. Forget about it. Um, I don't know if you knew that it was from Shakespeare. Um, But if you liked it, then clap for it. Um, Treat it any way that you want. But at any rate, the fairies disappear. Theseus and Hippolyta come back in their Athenian clothes. This happens um, between the end of um, Act 4, Scene 1 and Act 5, Scene 1. That is, there's plenty of time for them to change. And they do change. what we can tell is that the way they change is they put on Athenian clothes over their fairy clothes um, because they're going to do a quick change at the end of um, Act Five in order to appear again to bless the house. Um, now Hippolyta speaks the second time. And notice how different she is. To strange my Theseus that these lovers speak of. So look at that. Isn't that strange? Tis strange, my Theseus, that these lovers speak of. Um, and um, I'm sorry, I, I skipped um, Hippolyta's earlier description of um, hunting with Hercules. Um, but that's a place, I guess that's, that's an important moment um, because it, puts, it it reminds us that she's a mythological character. Um, that she's been with Hercules and that puts her a little bit closer to Titania than she was at the beginning of the play. It's as though we get Hippolyta as someone who'd gone hunting with Hercules, now we get Hippolyta again um, as someone back to Theseus, but we're reminded of them as mythological characters. Um, Theseus says, more strange than true Um, and then he has his um, famous speech about the lunatic, the lover, and the poet. Um, And then we get Aegeus coming in saying the mechanicals want to put on this play. And I think that's kind of an important moment because the way Theseus responds to the play is what finally should win our hearts and win Hippolyta's heart. Theseus has now agreed to the proper sorting out of the young lovers, so that's a huge further step in his favor. Um, And then... Hippolyta, we're now at line 88. Hippolyta doesn't want to see this play um, because she thinks it's just going to be, um, they're going to be making fun of the mechanicals and she says that's not a nice thing to do. Um, and so um, what she says is, at line 85 is I love not to see wretchedness or charge and duty in a service perishing. That is they're trying and you're just going to turn them into an object of fun. Theseus, why, gentle, sweet, you shall see no such thing. So he's saying, you got me wrong. You got wrong what my views are. Hippolyta, he says they can do nothing of this kind. And then Theseus's great answer, the kinder we to give them thanks for nothing. Um, notice ha- what a nice benign version of the nothing that we were looking at in Richard II, that is. They can do nothing of this kind. The kinder we to give them thanks for nothing. Not thanks for nothing, guys, but thanks for what you've given us. Yeah, it's nothing but thank you. Um, Our sport shall be to take what they mistake. And what poor duty cannot do, noble respect takes it in might, not merit. Where I have come. Great clerks have purposed to greet me with premeditated welcomes, where I have seen them shiver and look pale, make periods in the midst of sentences. Hang on to that idea. That is, that they stop their sentences right in the middle, make periods in the midst of sentences, throttle their practice accent in their fears, and in conclusion, dumbly have broke off, not paying me a welcome. Trust me, sweet, out of this silence, yet I picked a welcome. And in the modesty of fearful duty, I read as much as from the rattling tongue of saucy and audacious eloquence. Love, therefore, and tongue-tied simplicity and least speak most to my capacity. So what he's saying is, look how good I am at understanding people and being kind to them through that understanding. And that's important. That's um, a moment where we really get a lot closer to converting to Theseus. And then Theseus, within that play, within the play, the play of Pyramus and Thisbe, um, Theseus is the best audience member, the one who, who does take kindly everything they do. Um, the young men, and to some extent the young women, do make fun of the mechanicals, but Theseus doesn't. He's really good to them. He's exactly what you want. Um, when Quince comes in, you can see the period in the midst of a sentence. It's worthwhile repunctuating um, what he says. If we offend it's with our goodwill, which means we intend to offend. Um, but what he really means is, um, it's with our goodwill that you should, you should think we come not to offend. Um, but So if we offend, it is with our good will that you should think. We come not to offend, but with good will. That is, we really mean to offend. Um, Whereas what he's trying to say is we come not to offend, but we come with good will, but with good will to show our simple skill. That is the true beginning of our end, but it comes out as to show our simple skill. That is the true beginning of our end. We want to show how bad we are. (laughs) Consider then we come but in despite. Um... No, what he meant to say is, um, the, tr- the, that, the true beginning of our end, consider then, we come, here we are, but in despite, we do not come. Um, that's what he meant to say, but he's kind of pushing the line endings and the rhymes too much, so he's reading the way you were taught not to read in third grade, which is ending at the lines. Consider then, we come but in despite. We do not come as minding to content you. Um, What he meant to say is we come, but in despite we do not come, as minding to content you our true intent is. But no, as we do not come as minding to to content you, our true intent is all for your delight, we are not here. (laughs) Whereas what he meant was our true intent is all for your delight. All for your delight, we are not here. That you should here repent you, the actors are at hand. Whereas what he meant was, we are not here that you should here repent you. Um, so he totally blows it, but Theseus totally gets it. Um, he says the opposite of what he means by mispunctuating. Um, this is, a, by the way, something Juliet does intentionally. She's um, she does the same sort of thing that Theseus is doing here in Romeo and Juliet. Um, here, um, Theseus understands the mispunctuation and corrects it properly, then we get a lot of baudiness and the I kiss your stones and all that in the um, um, in the Pyramus and Thisbe play, but I want to get back to the end of the play um, and look at um, What happens with Robin's entry? Um, So so all the couples go off to bed Um, They exit on page 893, Act 5, Scene 1, line 358, Exeunt, and then we get Act 5, Scene 2. Enter Puck, Um, and he has this speech, and while he's speaking this speech, um, Theseus and Hippolyta are re-costuming as Oberon and Titania. Um, That's something we know Um, because we should recognize them. Shakespeare's actors were known to his audience. Um, Just so you know, the company was, um, it was a repertory company, and um, it wasn't the case that you went to see this play and they got a bunch of people together for this play who would never act together again. It was always the same people acting together. There's a joke about this in Hamlet, where Polonius, who was the same actor who had played Julius Caesar, is talking to Hamlet, who is the same actor who had played Cassius, um, um, excuse me, he played Brutus, and Polonius said, well, you know, I once played Julius Caesar. Brutus killed me. He stabbed me in the Capitol. And Hamlet says to him, t'was a brute part of him to stab so capital a calf as thou art. Um, so Brutus was played by Richard Burbage. Burbage now plays Hamlet. Guess what happens um, an act later? He stabs him again. Um, and you're supposed to see that you in Shakespeare's day are supposed to see um, that, oh, my God, it's the same thing happening again. Yikes. Um, if you seen the movie The Freshman where, um, where Marlon Brando plays a mafia don who the last thing you're allowed to say to him is he looks just like the guy in The Godfather, it just drives him crazy, um, and it's because he's played by Marlon Brando. It's a similar kind of joke. Um, so... Now enter Puck, and here's this dose of reality. Now the hungry lion roars, and the wolf behowls the moon, whilst the heavy plowman snores, all with weary tasks for done. Now the wasted brands do glow, whilst the screech, which should remind you of Sonnet 73, whilst the screech owl, screeching loud, puts the wretch that lies in woe in remembrance of a shroud. Now it is the time of night that the grave's all gaping wide, everyone lets forth his sprite, and the churchway paths to glide. And notice that we get from real misery to a kind of parody misery, ghosts and demons, oh my, Um, which allows us now to to get back into the fairy land of the play. Um, And we fairies that do run by the triple Hecate's team from the presence of the sun following darkness like a dream now are frolic. Not a mouse shall disturb this hallowed house. I am sent with broom before to sweep the dust behind the door. And here come the king and queen of the fairies with all their train. And they bless the house. Through the house give glimmering light by the dead and drowsy fire. Every elf and fairy sprite hop as light as bird from briar. And this ditty after me sing and dance it trippingly. And they sing their songs. And notice that Oberon and Titania get back together as an audience agreeing that they're happy about Theseus and Hippolyta the very thing that was the object of their scorn and jealousy. You're here because you want to see Theseus happy with Hippolyta. You're here because you want to see Hippolyta happy with Theseus. Screw you. Screw you, too. Or rather, don't. Um, Now becomes the proper audience, which is... That, that's a great story and it's ending happily and we share in the warmth of their love for each other by being happy together about their happiness together. Which is why there are date movies to begin with. To be happy with your date about the happiness of what's happened on screen. That brings you together too. That's the opposite of what we saw earlier. And then Oberon blesses them. We have like five minutes and we need them. Now, until the break of day, through the house, this house each very stray to the best bride bed will we, which by us shall blessed be, and here's the blessing, and the issue there create ever shall be fortunate, so shall all the couples three ever true and loving be. So everything that happens, all the children conceived tonight will, will always be fortunate. And that's lovely, and that's wonderful, and that's not true. Because if you know the story of Theseus and Hippolyta, what you will know is that Theseus and Hippolyta had sex, and they had a child. But Hippolyta, being mortal, of that boy did die. So nine months from tonight, Hippolyta will die in childbirth. Um, Theseus, in his great grief, will call the child, after the name of his dead mother, he will call the child Hippolytus. Hippolytus is the subject of various tragedies, both by Euripides and by Racine. Why? Because he grows up. And he is a very beautiful and um, charismatic and heroic boy, Theseus in the meantime remarries. And he remarries a woman named Phaedra. And um, Phaedra, now Theseus really is getting a little long in the tooth. And Phaedra falls in love with her stepson, Hippolytus, and says to him, this is as reversed as you can get from Titania's relation to the changeling boy, but she says to her stepson, I'm in love with you. And he says, I'm sorry. And she gets very angry. And she says to Theseus, your son tried to force me to have sex. And Theseus, who has a lot of credit with the gods, get the gods to kill his son um, through a couple of serpents who come in from the sea. And so Hippolytus is killed, and then Phaedra says, oh, my goodness, what have I done? And it becomes her tragedy. Um, She feels terrible guilt over it. But there is a future, and it's not a good one, to what happens at the end of the Midsummer Night's Dream. Now, I don't mean to say that means, oh, my God, this is really a tragedy masquerading as a comedy. I think it's another intrusion of reality, and I think essentially what Shakespeare is saying is, look, of course no one lives happily ever after when they get married. They don't. But, nevertheless, the end of a comedy, the moment of pure hope at the end of a comedy, at the beginning of a marriage, that moment is one you're entitled to regard as happy. And you're entitled to regard it by being there at that ending now. Whatever the future holds is in the future. Be here at the present. And I think that's what Puck's epilogue means also but it's now is the end, and it's ending where it should be, and it may be cold outside, but enjoy this moment. Enjoy your weekend, too.